Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Rise and Mastery Room, etc. Aaron Kashkai, who's a partner at DVC and a general partner in Earthling VC, and is also a machine learning infra engineer within Meta Related Labs. Thanks to Dave Goldblatt from White Capital for the introduction. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. It's going to be fun. We, we talked about um, that you 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 born in Germany uh, and then then you moved to the US. How how was your childhood you, you know and what got you really interested in getting into this world of startups? Uh, I, I think I always had a, um, a a bit of, I guess, an entrepreneurial drive, if you will. Like, I think even as a kid, like one of my favorite things to do is just to build Legos and, you know, to go free form, right? You know, not to to follow the instructions, but just I want to make you take these blocks and, and make my own building, right? And, um, you know, even as I grew up, like as a teenager, I did it with like music production and these sorts of things. You know, I just like want to, you know, I like it. I just want to learn how to do it myself and build it. And, you know, like I made pocket money in high school. Uh, the selling hip hop beats that I made to, to to artists and stuff and that sort of thing. So uh, I always had this sort of I think drive to just build things. I always thought it was fun. You know, I always had that sort of I guess creativity. Um, and as like, I think really started with that when I was in college uh, when I took my first step at like a real sort of uh, business. And um, so dropped out for two years. I actually do that full time in between my studies and all of that. And um, I think I realized from that that like I love startups, I love the thrill, I love doing it. There's, you know, I think so much you can really create doing that. Uh, but also, I'm a crap operator uh, in the end of the day, and, and decided that you know maybe my talent is better served on the uh, on the on the other side of the tables as an investor. Um, so I've really been doing that kind of for the last few years, and um, it's honestly extremely missionary for me. You know, I think a lot of people look at it as a as a kind of a financial instrument or something like that. But, you know, I, I see early stage investing and, you know, me being really just focused on pre-seed um, really as, as, as kind of missionary, because I think you're in a, in a position to catalyze kind of the future. Um, and that actually has a lot of responsibility. I, I think that comes with it. And so for me, I feel like it's actually a very uh, a meaningful contribution that I can make to, to the future of society, if you will. Um, and again, that's also specifically why I focus on pre-seed and not, you know, kind of growth stage or something like that, where I think it's it's just a different kind of game that you're playing. But, you know, kind of being really, really early with the missionaries, so to speak, um, is, is a lot of fun for me. So um, it's kind of been the best use of my time, I would say, in my 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 time on this earth is, is spending time with founders and helping catalyze some of the successes and so on. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think I really love being in the space of pre-seed and seed, and that's where, you know, spend most of my career in. But uh, but you also, you know, spend time building a Rapify. You know, what was what was the platform all about? Uh, yeah, build the company. Yeah, I mean, so that was that was kind of the first real entrepreneurial endeavor, I would say. Um, so that was kind of the background for that. Um, so I went to German International School when we came to the U.S. and, and I also graduated high school from there. Uh, and so one of my good friends at the time uh, was was basically like a, like a musician, like an artist, and you know he'd, he'd make music German market music and all that sort of stuff. And um, so after he graduated, he he went back to Europe and actually started to get somewhat from, like successful, right? You know, like he would, you know, became very well connected and, you know, went on tour and these sorts of things. So he kind of picked up as an artist. And uh, at the time we were making music together in high school, you know, like I'd produce for him and all that. Like I mentioned earlier that, you know, I used to like sell beats and stuff. So I used to produce his, a lot of his music and 
we'd always talked about the industry for a while, you know, that there's like no discoverability, right? There's not really any like any means for for kind of indie artists and stuff to distribute their stuff. So um, this was like 2013, 2014, we came up with this. And uh, I think the idea was kind of like effectively like of a pseudo SoundCloud, Spotify kind of uh, streaming service that was very geared towards the German market. Uh, and I think some of the very like uh, idiosyncrasies within that market that we wanted to address. Uh, and we thought, well, you know, I can build it right as being a, an engineer by background. And he he now has kind of the network there to really start spreading that amongst artists and kind of solving a bit for that cold start. Um, so we just decided to do it. So I was in college when we started it, um, decided to drop out at some point to, to focus on it full time. Um, but yeah, that was that was really like the I think the inspiration is is you know we we'd known each other well you know we'd worked together we talked about it for a while and I think we kind of finally saw that like we have some circumstances in our favor here and let's just let's just go for it. How it went, of course, is a different story, right? You know, and I think I could write a whole postmortem on why that company failed, mm-hmm. uh, independent of maybe like other like kind of broader market trends and stuff. But I think just like where we screwed up as entrepreneurs, um, which is of course also then like. Uh, insights you take into your investing right but um yeah that was that was at least the origin interesting you you say you you dropped out of the college you know uh you know did were your parents okay with it you know coming from uh, from an Iranian immigrant uh, you know uh, uh somebody who's like an like an immigrant did you yeah to convince your parents about it I, I think so i mean you know i i would say my parents definitely were used to the idea of risk, right? I mean, they 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 also kind of did their own, they're also like self-employed, right? And, you know, like I think my childhood was very uh, up and down because of that. You know, it's like they weren't the typical like, oh, we're immigrants, we're going to be like super successful entrepreneurs and all that kind of, you know, it was definitely a grind. It still is to this day for them. And so um, I think to some extent that it also took the fear out of it, right? Like I think my parents were definitely supportive of, of doing it because that's the sympathy to it. I wasn't that concerned because for lack of a better term, you know, I'm used to kind of turbulent existence up to that point in time. So it was like, you know, it wasn't really a big concern for me. I will say, though, that um, and this was the hard part at the time, not necessarily my parents, but kind of everyone around you was like telling you you're crazy, basically. Right. Like, you know, there are very, very few people I would say that, you know, were like we're like kind of encouraging. And they're like, you know, the, the, the most the rhetoric was like, are you sure you don't want to go back or she maybe you should finish? you know, things of that nature. Right. And so um, I always say that's probably the best, um, probably the best decision I made in my life was actually dropping out and doing it, even though the company wasn't successful going back and all this stuff. Cause I think it just really set the groundwork for everything that came after that. Right. And, you know, like, for example, you know, I, I started working at Facebook right at a college and I don't think that would have been possible for the school that I went to um, without that experience. And even all the interviews and stuff were all about like asking me about that startup and these sorts of things. And, you know, it was just the, the stuff that I learned, which subsequently let me like focus on different things when I went back to, to university and these sorts of things. By far, I think the, the decision that I'm still reaping benefits from today. Uh, but it was, yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think it's, might have been difficult to pull through with that if I wasn't completely convicted that like I'm doing this from the motivation that I think like I will just learn the most doing this. Like I will learn more. Um, I really take more meaningful experience away from doing this versus just kind of doing the usual, like going on my, my normal university path. Mm. Um, so I, it's something I actually, to be honest, I have these kind of conversations with, with when I talk to college kids a lot or even high schoolers. 
where, you know, there are the other few of them that, you know, like, yeah, I have this idea. I'm thinking about doing it, you know, whatever. Um, I always tell them just do it, right? Like if it's something that you think that you're just going to, you're going to pull something out of it, even if it doesn't end up being successful, but just, you see that there's a lot you've learned from doing it, just do it. Uh, Cause particularly at that age, you have nothing to lose, right? Like you don't have bills to pay. You don't have a family. You don't have debt, you know, nothing. Right. So it's like, it's the optimal time to just go out and try something Whereas like now, even, you know, it, me currently, like, you know, if I want to do something, there's still a lot more things I have to think about, right? Uh, I have rent, I have a car payment, I have, you know, all these sorts of responsibilities, right, that I didn't have when I was 20. Um, and, you know, so especially looking back, I'm like, yeah, that really was the best damn time to try to just say YOLO, like, I'm going to try something mm-hmm. um, and just do it, basically, and see what happens. So. Best decision ever. Not easy, but best decision ever. Awesome. Yeah. Very interesting. And um, yeah. you talked about that you you invest in, into into pre seed and seed, and you come in very early. Um, what are some of your rules when you you when you look at angel investing? Continue you started doing a couple of years back. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think a, a sort of sector side, right? Because I'm obviously very sector focused on on VR and AI specifically, or I should say more kind of 3D and AI specifically. So like that aside, right? If I'm just evaluating within kind of within that thesis, um, I always say like 90% of it is uh, about the team at that stage, particularly pre-seed, right? Because it's like, there's not going to be much. I mean, you know, there are going to be pivots, right? That's all stuff you have to account for. The idea might not be the same in a year versus what you invest in today, right? So I think the thing that you need to be particularly convicted by uh, is firstly just the team. And so I'll dig into that, but then also just generally liking the market. And I think the sort of vision that they're going after, right? Because uh, I've had a few companies, for example, that they're doing very well where, you know, they're, they're, their strategy changed, right? The product changed, but I think the end vision that they wanted to work towards, like the future that they wanted to work towards is pretty consistent. It's just the means of getting there changed. Um, but, you know, I think you really want to invest in like good people kind of really thinking into the, the vision of the future that, 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 that you imagine. Um, I think on the founder side, there are definitely a few, a few signals that, um, that, that you can look at. I mean, I think first and foremost, um, you just got to like, as an investor, it's like a very personal thing, right? It's like, you know, you just have to decide like, Hey, is this, is this a kind of guy or the team that I like enough that, you know, I want to talk to them once a week for the next few years and basically be married to them for the next 10, 15 years as their company successful. That's a very personal thing, right? You know, so there, I don't think there's any specific like checkbox there. That's just effectively vibe check, right? It was like, I think the very first and foremost thing. Um, like I have very good relations with a lot of my founders. A lot of it's just rooted in that. It's like people I just get excited about and they get excited about me and it's just a fit, right? That's, that's, that's two-sided by the way. You know, it's, I think also if you're a founder and you're, you're looking for pre-seed angels in particular, like don't take people just because of the money. Like if you don't like them, as you don't get along with them as people, I think also for founders, it's very important, uh, advice. I think on a more technical level, uh, of course, you're looking at some sort of credential from the standpoint of like, you know, do they do you have reason to believe that they can carry out the vision that they want to carry out, right? So, you know, if someone's pitching me an AI company, I obviously want to see some pretty legit like ML experience there. Um, you know, just as like, you know, to give you some some data points that they can actually do it, right? They know what they're talking about. And then the single most important thing, I think, beyond that for me is iteration speed. Um, you know, so like how much have you done with uh with what you have? in a certain period of time. Uh, and the founders that I tend to get very excited about, I think are the ones that really have managed to do really build a lot of product or generate a lot of traction uh, with very, very little resource in a very short period of time. 
um, that usually is a pretty good, pretty good indicator to me that uh, they're going to be hustlers, first of all, because that's really what you need at that stage. Um, but also that they're extremely competent in, in rolling out product. And, you know, they'll, they'll be able to pivot quickly, right? They will be moved quickly, which is, I think, very important at, at pre-seed. Uh, and I think particularly when you're playing in spaces like, let's say, AI now, right, where there's really going to be a lot of competition. And, and I think the, the landscape will change very, very quickly. Um, you really want to see that, okay, you're backing a team that, that can be very dynamic. Uh, and can react and iterate very quickly. Yeah. Um, I think those are the main things that that I really look for um, at pre-seed. Interesting. And um, uh, you know, you've invested in a couple of startups. Uh, what are, what are some of the biggest mistakes you've made when you know angel investing? Not listening to my guts. Um, there are a few investments that I've done. Not a few. There maybe one or two um, where I think I tried to take an over rational approach to it. Right where I was like. Um, objectively, a lot of things here check out, right? Like objectively, the team is is interesting. Objectively, the market they're going about is 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 is, is good. Objectively, their penetration to the market has been good. Um, and so basically, we check all these kind of like conventional boxes, right? Of like this seems like to be like a good bet, uh, like interesting code, co-investor signal, and so on. Um, but for some reason, I was just never really like, you know, really like in my gut convicted that I want to do it. Um, and I did it anyway. Like, I think some of those I look back and think to myself, um, maybe those were those I shouldn't have done um, for a number of reasons. Not even that the investment does poorly, but I'm just like, you know, it's not it's not one where I can like, you know, I, I want to really be able to vouch for my portfolio. Right. Like I want to be able to like go and like with all of my conviction tell somebody how great one of my companies is. And I just can't like honestly get there with, with like one or two of them. Uh, and again, there's no like hate on them. It's just, you know, it's like, it kind of goes back to that vibe check thing I mentioned earlier. Like maybe me, we were the best, you know, founder investor fits. Um, so those for sure. I think there are also some where, where it was maybe the other side where I wanted to overlook particularly the, the iteration speed part, which is why I'm very sensitive to this, where, Oh, you know, I like them. I like the vision, all this stuff, and I do it. But I was like, maybe if, and if that investment did poorly, and I would have, I would have, when I was diligencing it, if I would have spent more time looking at what have they done so far and really analyze that, I might have passed, um, which would have, in hindsight, been a good financial decision because some of those companies have done poorly. Um, those, those, so the two opposite ends of the spectrum. But, but I think the vibe check one is is is, is the biggest one, and. Um, there, there are definitely a few folks, you know, kind of pre-seed VCs that have been around for a long time, very successful that I think I've heard similar sort of sentiments from that for them, a lot of it just ends up being about vibe check, right? You know, that like, even if it all sounds great, but their their guts just not there, they pass, right? And and that's right. something that's been extremely successful for them. Um, so I, I think I'm kind of learning that too now. Today I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives Increase the social media presence by 10x. They manage to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. I want to understand about, you know, what is the what is the thesis for Earthling? Uh, you, you focus on 3D, but uh, AR, VR, and AI... Uh, what, what is the difference in all three of them, uh, you know, and wh- why are you so focused on? Uh, yeah, I think that, so the philosophy of the fund is um, basically enriching the human experience is like the core, the core tenant of the fund, right? Because I think also when you think of a fund, 
actually the term I should use is firm, right? Because if I'm starting this, I'm thinking this is going to exist for 30 years. Right. I think there's a core philosophy behind what you want. Uh, and so for me, it's rich in human experience, effectively technology. Um, and so if I look at kind of what's been happening in computing for the last, let's say, decade, um, long story short, through my own experiences, I've become pretty convinced that like both AI and 3D spatial computing, AR, VR, whatever you want to call it, um, are going to be the two computing mediums that like fundamentally, I think, change um, just the augment our capability, first of all, sub subsequently is going to have this downstream effect of really, I think, disrupting a lot of things in, in, in society, both how we do things, how we interact with each other, so on and so forth. And that's a big deal, I think. Those are, uh, which is, you know, by the way, also why I've spent the better part of the last decade working in these fields, both in, in kind of as a machinery engineer, but also in, in, in the 3D space. Um, I think there's a lot of tremendous upside that can be that can be generated through that, but there is also a lot of downside risk. And so uh, one of the reasons I got into it just on the operational side is that like, I want to understand this stuff so I can understand these risks and play a part in that. Uh, and I think now as a, um, as an investor, I think I have both kind of the, the business side, but also the technical side to really pick at a very early stage, um, which companies are obviously, you know, have a chance of being successful, but also, uh, which ones are doing something good, right. For us. In other words, like which ones are driving like good second and third order outcomes, which to me is very important. Um, so because I see those two technologies as being at the forefront of that, at least for my kind of point of view in, in, in software. Um, I wanted to focus on that. Uh, and again, also that's where my background's from, so blends itself. Now, I mentioned that thesis of a kind of 30-year philosophy earlier to say that like, this is the focus now, but I could see that evolving over, let's say the next couple of decades, right? Like who knows if these are kind of like the, the, um, the really the, 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 the preeminent uh, augmenting technology, so to speak, in the next in, in 15 years from now, like who knows, right? Now it is, who knows what it's in 15 years. Um, so that that part of the thesis could obviously change, but right now, like I think in computing, those two things are are, are really at the forefront. And particularly I think when they start converging, I think it's really gonna gonna drive meaningful change. And we want to make sure we're doing the right thing there and not, you know, not drive us into dystopia effectively. Got interesting. And um and especially, you know, with, with what happened with uh, you know, open AI with Chat GPT, I think it's been it's been on the news for a lot of past month or so, but, but yep. do you think AI will replace uh, a lot of the SaaS companies uh, or do you think, you know, it's going to, uh, I mean, a lot of SaaS companies are going to be there, but AI, AI will just displace uh, people who are, who are doers or not thinkers. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, I think the, I mean, I will preface this by saying that I do think some of the, 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 the you know, you see two streams of thought right now, which is like the hype train and the doomerism. I think the answer is probably somewhere in the middle in terms of where the actual capability is, like, to be perfectly honest. Like, I always say I was actually more blown away by GPT-3 when it came out three years ago. I remember that I remember that moment exactly. I remember I was sitting in a cafe in like May 2020 reading the the paper. And I was like, holy shit, right? And so I don't think anything OpenAI has, has done since then is actually as a as an ML engineer, like kind of sort of kicked me back on my chair more than GPT-3 at the time. So that's something I always use for context. But um yeah, I I I definitely think that you see where this is going, right? A lot of it is co-piloting, right? So in other words, like uh, one of the great use cases, of course, is like is writing code or like, you know, kind of helping with as, as a writing tool. Right. But it doesn't do the whole thing. Right. What it basically does is I think it lets you iterate through concepts 
significantly faster, right? And that's true for writing, that's true for, for, for image generation, uh, so on and so forth. So I think a lot of these, uh, these jobs that, um, I, I don't know if they're going to go away, but they might be reframed, right? Like, let's just take a software engineer. Um, I think what ChatGPT does, or, or let's just say GitHub Copilot does, is effectively a lot of what like a junior engineer, like an entry level coming out of college kind of engineer would do for like a tech lead, right? In terms of like, you know, the tech lead will tell the, the junior engineer, write a function, right? And, and and do this. And so I don't think that that tech lead is at any imminent risk, right? Uh, because they still have to build the system architecture. There's a lot of actually creative kind of alignment work and stuff that needs to happen at that level that ChatGPT cannot do, but it might do some of the work that, uh, the junior engineer does. Um, and so subsequently, like, does that reimagine what an entry-level engineer might look like, uh, for example? I think I think that that's, for example, a big question. Um, I think you'd say the same about writing. Like, one, one domain I look a lot is obviously gaming because that's very kind of within the 3D space. And, um, you know, I think there's the same kind of question on gaming. Do game designers now, they like, what is that going to look like, right? Where my thesis is that, like, I don't think less people are going to have jobs. I just think that more of the designers or their outputs can be 10x, which you actually need, for example, if you want to build a kind of fully immersive VR world, like you just can't do it manually quickly enough. Um, so that's actually good. Um, so, so I think really what it does is it raises the bar for what we can actually accomplish with small teams. Um, so it just kind of 10x is the potential output we'll have in certain domains. Uh, and I do emphasize that last point that... Um, you know, I think a lot of this conversation about how like chat GPT or whatever is going to just take over everything. Like, no, I think like, you know, there, there are very clear domains where this will be relevant and it will 10 X the output. Um, but it's kind of might be limited to that, uh, especially initially. So I, I see it as net positives. Right. And the, the but the, the issue is, I think there's a lot of the framing around it. And I think you might've hinted at that a little bit, which is, um, I think there's it, it comes across psychologically very differently to people if you frame it as a technology that augments your capability. In other words, makes you more productive. It lets you do more. It actually supercharges your own capability and creativity. Versus saying, uh, you know, like AI colleagues, which has this sort of like um, humanization factor of the technology, which can get scary, right? Because it's like you know you can start dooming on that sort of framing a lot, right? Because it like indicates that like maybe we replace people, you know, maybe all of a sudden we have this other kind of artificial instance that's our equal. And that, you know, starts to, I think, provoke like kind of dystopian thoughts. Um, and so I think the framing is a lot of what, what freaks people out about this rather than than the actual output, right? So I think if you objectively look at the output, you, again, you steer it in the right direction because what I was saying earlier, a lot of really good stuff can come out of this. I mean, like, yeah, I think it's great if you tell someone, like all of a sudden you tell an artist, for example, that, hey, you can iterate through your artistic concepts 10 times faster now because uh, you can basically get a machine to, to do some of the the the, the concepts for you. Uh, that's great, right? It's a new skill set, right? But like, I think that that's actually a positive output for everybody. Um, but I think the framing is the more, is what, what's kind of freaking a lot of people out. Mm, kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to talk about uh, how investors can, you know, add value uh, in the sense, like, what is the best way uh, a founder can build a great relationship with VCs? And what, in your view, has been the optimal way to build those relationships? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I always say, like, say, like what I mentioned before, I think, I think, kind of off the notion of this vibe check uh, thing that I mentioned at the, at the beginning. Um, in the end of the day, like, investing is a very personal thing. I mean, like, I, I don't, I don't really track much to be honest, beyond Series A, but like, I think A downwards is uh, very, very, it's very people business, right? And so, people like to invest in people that they know and trust and like effectively um and so that goes to say that if you're an if you're a, a founder and you're looking for founding and you're very early i think one of the best things you can do as a ceo is take let's say 10% of your your schedule uh and allocate that to just talking to investors taking inbounds you know like seeing who's out there and treat it very casually like you know i've i've seen a lot of uh investment decisions get made on people where you know they had a pre-existing relationship for over a year, right? Um, and it was just very casual. And I think again, like a lot of a lot of early investors tend to also be kind of geeks, right? In particular fields, right? You know, so they they tend to actually just like the fields they invest in, you know. So for them, like to have a founder that's selling them something interesting or that they like or whatever is like a very, it's just something that they do without any. Most of them, of course, not all of them, right? But a, a lot of people would do without any sort of like transactional uh, component to it. Um, and so I think it's important also as a founder to just treat things that way, right? That like investment is not just a purely transactional function. Like the investment itself might be, uh, but the work leading up to it isn't, right? And like it is people in the end of the day, right? You know, so building relationships just with investors that you like and, um, you know, getting them to trust you, getting them to see a body of your work right over time is I think the best way to convince somebody uh, to write a check. And I think also it'll... Um, it'll it'll reduce the actual time that you go out trying to raise, if that makes sense. Got because it. you know, by the time you decide to raise again, you would have already had all these relationships built up with with people that you, by the way, also again, it also it's always two, it's always a, a two way street, right? That right. like you yourself as a founder have to determine, like, hey, this is an investor I actually want to involve with my company, you know, and they like me, and we have a relationship with them. They've seen us operate for five, six, seven, whatever it is, months. Um, those sorts of deals can get done a lot faster, and so it'll, it'll just give you less headache trying to raise. Um, and ultimately, I think it becomes less of a distraction, right? Because I think one of the worst things that can happen to companies is, you know, the CEO gets completely sidetracked and trying to fundraise for six months uh, and actually kind of lose sight of the operating. I think if you kind of do it in this way, you can you can you can meet that balance a lot better. Um, so always, I would say, always look at it as like investors are people, right? You know, you got to get along with them. They function like everybody else, right? You know, it's just kind of kind of treated that way, like treated as like you're building a a, a relationship, right? And right. Um, it doesn't have to be. It, it, don't treat it as being like exclusively transactional. Mm, got it. Interesting. And uh, you made an interesting point that you uh, you can have a like build a relationship and have that casual relationship, but but in 2023, it looks like there's impending uh, recession, and it said that you know it takes you three months to six months to to uh, to uh, you know, to raise around, but yeah. Suggestion would you give to founders who are looking to raise the next round of funding, and you know, what do you think three months to six months is the ideal, uh, you know, time for them to raise the next round of funding? You know, if they have raise a pre-seed and they're looking to raise a seed round. So you're saying in terms of the time it would actually take them to raise, or you saying yeah. the? I mean, I think it's very case by case, right? I think a lot of it's how you how how you get set up, right? Like again, it's kind of like what I mentioned in the in the last part, like you know. Um, I think a lot of founders that that have kind of built VC networks over time will just naturally raise quicker because, you know, they have to do less cold outreach, right? They have to sort of like, 
they have to, to 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 pull less strings to try to get in front of certain VCs and then build relationships with those VCs and you know, that all kind of takes time. Whereas you know there are a lot of founders that have those relationships very very fast, right? right. Uh, and a lot of those conversations go quickly. So it's very case by case. There are other things that happen too, right? I mean, like let's say you're raising and a a big name investor or a big name fund signal fund decides to come in, like. Let's just say hypothetically you're raising a five million round, and hypothetically Sequoia or Andreessen Horowitz comes into your round and takes half of it. For you to get the follow-on for the rest of the 2.5 million that you're raising is going to be very easy, right? Mm-hmm. Like versus not having it, right? So there are a lot of variables that can that can that can determine just like how how well your round is going to do, like independent of um, what your actual what what the, what your offering in of itself is. Um, the biggest thing I can encourage founders to do though uh is early rounds are all about momentum um it doesn't matter how like good your company is it's all about momentum and like investors have to have a feeling that when they're talking to you and they're considering investing that they do not have time to just like willy-nilly dilly-dally on on doing the deal right i think the purgatory that some good companies i've seen like sort of fall into is you know, they're, they're very kind of like, ah, you know, they have this sort of like, they were not in a rush kind of thing to take your check mentality. And what ends up happening, let's say your pre-seed company, right? You don't have a lot of data around you anyway. Every month, every two, three months that you that you operate is like valuable data to a, to a, to an investor. Um, that the investor all of a sudden gets the comfort that they can sit there and say, okay, I mean, you know, I like this, I like the team, but if I I have no opportunity cost right now and sitting for one, two months and just watching them, right? Because it's like the round's going to be open, you know, it doesn't look like they're, they're, they're on track to fill it, whatever, you know, or again, there's no urgency. I can sit there and I can get all these data points free, basically. Um, you want to make sure you don't fall into that, right? So I think there are certain strategies to take with kind of both organically and artificially introducing some momentum into your round that will make investors kind of act faster. And then that all kind of snowballs. Um, but I think that's very, very important. It's like the main thing, the pre-seed rounds are all about momentum. No. Uh, you want to have momentum. Like, and that that's all you should be thinking about. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing instructions and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Since you've been an operator, uh, do you think angel investing helps uh, you know, how, how you operate and you know, look at, look at uh, uh, you know, at, at an operational role, or do you think it it's a bit of a distraction to be a founder and an operator and do angel investing? You know, it's an interesting question. I actually think about this a lot. Um, and to be honest, I think it's very it's very case by case because also like angel investing, you can the nice thing I guess about angel investing is that you can largely decide how involved you want to be. Right. Um, you know, like me personally, like I've always been a very hands-on angel, right? Because again, I just like doing that. Um, I also case by case with companies, like some companies don't want my help as much, right? So obviously don't I don't deal as much with them, so on. But you know, there's some people that are very happy to just kind of like put their money in and then like disappear. Um so I think it depends. Um 
but there's always data points that you can get from obviously knowing what other companies are up to, right? Like largely, like, you know, I, I think sort of stuff like this, so we just talked about like fundraising and stuff, right? You know, like, hey, you know, if 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 Angel invested in other company, like, you know, is 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 your best means of getting data points on just like how the market is and all these sorts of things, like it can help, right? Yeah. Um but yeah, principally I would say just conceptually, um I, I actually don't know how I feel about, let's say you're like a founder and then you're investing, right? Yeah. Just, just from a sheer kind of commitment point of view, right? Because I think, let's say it's me as someone that's investing in your company, um, I, I'd, I'd want to get a sense that like, obviously you're 100% behind what you're doing. Um, and so like, I'm like, okay, if you have all this money to like angel invest into other companies, like, wait, why are you not putting that into your own company, for example? Mm. Like, I, they're, they're obviously very like kind of strategic arguments that you can make for that saying like, you know, diversification, personal finance, right? I get all of that, right? You know, so I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate with that with that position. But um, I think it can be, um, I guess, bad signal, depending on, 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 your, on your case. Like if you're, let's say, already like a super exited founder, you've done it already, right? Like you're just pulling some of your capital out. It's like, I think, different than if you're doing it for the first time. Um, you know, so again, there are always variables, but... Um, it can help. It can be a distraction. It can be a negative signal. I think it 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 depends. Got it. And um, and what advice would you give to founders uh, in regards to investor updates? You know, because there's been a lot of talk about if a uh, if a startup gives regular updates, monthly updates, uh, there's a much better chance that they would be able to raise funding. But absolutely, what, yeah. How often should the investor updates be, and you know, what makes the best ones? I, I say, I say, like, I encourage, like, my own founders, I encourage founders that even, you know, I'm like, I'm not investing now, but who knows, maybe later. I always say, put me on your updates. Like, again, obviously, I'm on my portfolio company updates, right? But like, even founders where I'm like, I can't invest now, or I'm not investing now, but I'm like, I'm interested, you should put me on it. Um, I have made investments on companies that I've passed on. I follow their updates for three months and then invested, right? So I always tell founders like, and this I think this actually happens quite frequently, um, that investor updates can be one of the best like kind of passive promotion tools of your own company. Um, you know, particularly again, if you're kind of willing to share that with uh, just generally investors that maybe express some interest but not actually invested yet. Um, I always say do it once a month, particularly if you're early, like if you're a pre-seed company, do it once a month. Uh, because a lot can happen, right? You know, there's a lot less kind of stability, obviously, with the pre-seed company. Um, so I think if you set up updates once a month, it's great. And like, again, I, it's not causation, but I definitely see correlation between my companies do monthly updates and the ones that do really well, basically, right? Like I have some companies that do well that don't do them and, I, and vice versa, right? But um, for the most part, the ones that are kind of more consistent in their, in their, in their, in their, their, um, their communication tend to do quite well. Um, I am always be very honest on it, right? Like, you know, I think it's always good to say like, here's the good, here's the bad, but most importantly, also like asks of LPs or not LPs, sorry, of, of investors. Um, because I think sometimes founders might actually underestimate that like a, like how much network they already have invested in them by second degree. Uh, and two, that actually a lot of investors want to help. Right. But the thing is that like, if you don't tell them what you need help with or what the situation is, they can't help you basically. Right. Um, so I think updates are absolutely the best way to like passively kind of solicit more investment from, you know, uh, people that you might've been speaking to. Um, because again, it goes back. I know a lot of investors that think in the sort of iteration pattern, right. They really like, they like companies that iterate very quickly. 
Um, and so, hey, if you put someone in an update and can show someone that over three months, we're absolutely crushing it in terms of how fast we're iterating, you're going to get a lot of people, you're going to get a lot of people interested. Um, and the second thing is just, it's the best way to leverage your own, your own, um, um, investor network, uh, on all of this in a very passive way, which I think is a, is a nice way to go about it, both for, for investors, you know, who might be busy with a ton of stuff, um, and, and, and founders that you don't have to like, do a bunch of individual reach out to people, right? But you can kind of solicit it. So um, I'm a huge fan of updates and like any founder I talk to that doesn't do them, I'm like, please start doing them. Uh, it's probably the best thing you can do. Got it. And, um, and obviously, you know, I, I want to touch base by our Silicon Valley Bank, you know, it was uh, really sad what happened. But um, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of advice about like, uh, which, you know, startups were not really thinking about that. You need to have, you know, three or four bank accounts, but would you still give an advice for startups to work with other startup banks like Mercury, or would you advise them to work with only the big, big banks? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. Um, you know, again, I don't think anybody thought about this before SVP, right? So I think there's still a lot of like ideation on, on, on what the right strategy is. My personal opinion on this from the beginning actually has been, um, even before SVP crashed, but I remember when I lived in Silicon Valley, um, there were a lot of people asked me like, you know, if I want to make like an SVP account and whatever, and all these sorts of things, or if I have one, I'm like, no, I'm like, I don't see why, right? Like, because first of all, I don't need it. But second of all, like of all the other uncertainty in my life, the one thing I want to be certain about is my bank, right? Like, you know, I bank with Wells Fargo, no problem, whatever. Um, I think the same, same thing still applies, particularly for a startup. Like, you know, you know, your entire proposition is risky as a startup, right? You might as well just like de-risk operational aspects of it as much as possible. So like, again, this was never a topic, but if someone would have asked me even six months ago, I would have said, yeah, of course you should probably go with, 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 with the big bank. Just, it makes the most sense. Um, but yeah, I think for the startup banks, definitely, this is definitely not great. Right. I mean, like, uh, you know, I think even what you read about what happening to first Republic and all that stuff, a lot of people wanting to pull out and, you know, it, it kind of, there was this huge risk of contagion, obviously, which would have been a disaster. Um, I think it definitely isn't great for um, startup banks in of itself. But I think there are some services that, you know, I've seen more of this now. I think even Angelist said something like this, so I don't quote me on this, but, um, you know, that there are basically almost these services that are like actually manage your, 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 uh, your capital across different banks and the actual service that you interface with is this one that's kind of managing your, your account across different banks. Um, I think that can get interesting. There's always, there's always opportunity, these sorts of things, right? And I look at it. So like, is being a bank the opportunity? I don't know. Right. But is being some sort of bank that does that financial servicing a potential opportunity? Absolutely. Right. And so, um, yeah, you know, I, I again, it's all, as always, I think when there's crisis, there's opportunity, but it might be different than, than, than how you thought. Right. And so, okay. Certainly, I think there's 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 somebody's going to come up with something very clever here. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think on a on a kind of regulation level, though, uh, there is something to say about um, this whole idea of like backstopping, right? Because obviously, like you know, reason that the government had to backstop SUV is that bank fails, right? Like all of your regional banks are probably going to go under uh, over time. And I mean, just obviously the impact that has on the banking system, both in terms of like competition and monopoly and, and all these sorts of things is probably the opposite of what the government would want, right? So there is something to say about 
maybe should the, the 200 maybe should this actually be solved at, at regulation layer where you know there isn't a guarantee just in 250,000 but you know you raise that threshold uh you know by 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 very serious margin um that that could be another option I mean, I've spoken to people about this that are smarter than I am in this space but um again obviously I think it sheds the light that just there's going to be some opportunity for change mm-hmm. and Again, some innovative mind somewhere is going to change. Is going to change it again. I would probably bet on the startup doing it, but more so than the government. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so it, it, that that's the, that's a positive impact for sure. Got it. And you know, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Yeah, uh, zero to one. I might take a lot of flack for that by Peter Thiel. Um, reason I say that is it's the only i've read a lot of books where i read it and i was like oh that's interesting or oh you know there's something like you know, useful in here or whatever i think that's the only book that i've read where it really like had this impact of like really profoundly like making me think about how i think about stuff like at a very kind of like first principles level um you know i think kind of the way he like sums up the way the world works with like this kind of like quadrant of like uh indefinitely pessimistic definitely pessimistic you know like whatever that sort of thing is that he did um, really, really clever. And it was actually inspiration. A lot of why, why we went after Rapify, which I mentioned earlier, um, was actually very much born out of a lot of the philosophy that was kind of, uh, uh, talked about in, in zero to one. So I always say it's my favorite, just surely from the impact that it had on my own kind of operation. Um, and I still probably read it every now and then. I, mean, I think it's a great book. I think, again, just from a first principles perspective, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll put that in the show notes. Um, and you know, if you could go back in time when you started investing, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done thing differently? Yeah, I I, I would have probably started um, by trying to find an emerging manager that I really like, both as the manager but also like the the industry that I want to be involved with, mm. and start there because I think the biggest the biggest thing with angel investing is like it can often be a cold start problem, right? Like a lot of people ask me this always. They're like, "Wait, I want to angel invest." Like how basically like how do i start um you know so i did this in a very kind of serendipitous way that actually took a lot of work um you know it's because i always kind of i think had this back thinking that like i do want to do this like very seriously so i'm happy to put in the work but like maybe some people don't or even if you do i think just getting involved with the fund is the best way because you start getting deal flow like you know a lot of like early funds they'll give you co-invest opportunities um, you know, you'll get to actually see like working with the fund, you get to see a ton of companies, right? How they diligence it, et cetera. Um, I think that could just be a really good way to kind of solve cold start, but also like give you a bit of a framework about like how to really look at it, like these kind of investment opportunities. Um, and, you know, also just knowing other LPs and funds, they, a lot of them tend to have their own deal flow, right? Like there's just a lot of network because investing is effectively a network play, yeah. right? So um, I think that's one of the best ways to kind of like really solve for the cold start in the network if you don't already have it. Um, is you know be a small LP in an, in an early fund right that you like and 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 uh, uh, just kind of roll with it and like kind of you know be an active LP uh, I think go a long way so that's I think if I was starting out again like for sure something I would have knowing what I know today really really give a lot of consideration. Hmm. Interesting and uh, do you have any favorite online tools for example Gmail Slack no? Has to be Twitter. Um, I, I just what I mentioned you know like investing is a network game. Um. Twitter has by far probably been the best tool for me to like really build a lot of like meaningful connections on, especially during the pandemic time. Um, and, you know, really like kind of a lot like the root, you know, of a lot of relationships that I have, but then kind of blossomed into much bigger networks and stuff. They all kind of came from Twitter. Um, you know, even beyond that, I think there's just, you know, the spaces that I look at, there's just, it's the best way to keep up with what's going on. 
Um, I think anything else I can find an alternative for, but like Twitter going away for me is probably the one thing where I wouldn't have an immediate answer about like how I'm going to solve for that gap. Um, so yeah, I think I have to go with, with Twitter despite all the, I think the nonsense that Elon's doing to it, but um, has to be one of those. Cutter, we'll put down in show notes. And um, Adrian, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Virgin uh, VC? Yeah, I mean, I say I'm pretty active on Twitter, as I just mentioned. So I think follow me on Twitter. Um, you know, I'm linked to my homepage there and stuff. You know, so if you want to email me, it's all there. Um, you know, so I can also like ping you offline my email and stuff. I'm happy to always take hold inbounds and all that, my Twitter. But like, yeah, Twitter, email, um, all that sort of thing. Got it. We'll put down in the show notes again. Thank you so much for taking our time speaking to us. Awesome. I really enjoyed my conversation. No, awesome. it was fun. Uh, the, the, enjoyed the chat. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.